This is Murder Mystery Monday. Today we're talking about the Moonlight Murders or the Texarkana Phantom Stalker, Phantom Killer. One, he's got a bunch of names, right? The Texarkana Moonlight Murders is a term coined by the news media for a series of unsolved murders. You, you're, you're noticing a trend here, hey? You're noticing a trend on this chat. It's unsolved. We don't like, we don't like closure. We don't like finality. Also, I suppose we should start this off with a trigger warning. So three things. There will be some speak about murder. There are no flashing images. And I know that this comes up quite a bit, but in 1948, they didn't have an iPhone 3. So these are the unsolved murders and violent crimes that were committed in Texarkana in the spring of 1946, right around the time of the Cold War, because Cold War was like 47. This was like the year before. This was like preceding this wasn't part of the cold war so the phantom killer is credited with attacking eight people within 10 weeks and uh, taking the lives of five people the attacks happened on the weekends between february 22nd 1946 and may 3rd 1946 so i mean the span of this was very very quick it was three months you know what i mean and not even a three months because it was the last week of feb and the first week of may the first two victims jimmy hollis and mary larry that's her name mary larry i didn't just make that up and mispronounce it i'm uh, legit the first two victims survived they made it out alive the first double murder, which involved Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore, happened four weeks later. So he attacked some people, didn't get it right, took a month off, and then came back and he succeeded in taking some lives. The second double homicide involving Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker occurred exactly three weeks after the first murders. Finally, almost exactly three weeks later, Virgil Starks was killed and his wife Katie was severely wounded. It's, it's, the, it's that attack that, for Katie. There's a couple things. That that last last murder, that's the one that really like it holds my attention. But this next point is what is so interesting about this. The Texas Rangers came in to investigate, including the famous MT Lone Wolf Gonzalez. He's the guy. Like he's the dude that is called Lone Wolf, right? He's the like Texas Lone Ranger. It's this guy. It's MT. I mean, it's not, it's not fucking Chuck Norris, but it's, I mean, that's where the inspiration comes from. The murder sent the town of Texarkana into a state of panic throughout the summer. At dusk, city inhabitants heavily armed themselves and locked themselves indoors, while police patrolled streets and neighborhoods. Although many businesses lost customers at night, stores sold out of guns, ammunition, locks, and many other protective devices. Sounds a little bit like lockdown, hey? Choms just went cuckoos. You know what I mean? Okay, so they sold out of protective devices, like lots of locks, guns especially. Several rumors began to spread, including that the serial killer was caught or that a third and even fourth double homicide had been committed. I'll tell you what, the extraneous events that happened in around the city and sort of like in and around this time when i look at it i'm like you know like old people always go like in my time we didn't have to deal with iphones yes but you also had to deal with unsolved fucking murders didn't you because you couldn't do dna testing back then so uh, the town was obviously gripped in fear you know what i mean a lot of people left their homes they like they moved out of home went to go stay either in other cities around there or they went and stayed in hotels doesn't make sense to me because if you're in a hotel in the same city maybe you don't have a fence you know what i mean there's like highway homes where there's like no fence and just your house is there that's the situation so most of the town hid and some youths took matters into their own hands by trying to bait the phantom they would drive their cars out random sort of like deserted areas and then wait there hey come kill us <laughs> not a good idea the disappearance of virginia carpenter a cold case in texarkana in 1948 
So two years later has been speculated as the work of the Phantom. So after three months without Phantom attacks, the Texas Rangers slowly and quietly started leaving town. Um, and they did this. They left sort of like slowly and quietly drips and drabs because they didn't want to make like a big like big pomp and circumstance about leaving and then the phantom comes back and strikes again and then it all starts all over again you know what i mean that's sound reasoning really the murders were reported nationally and internationally by several publications the prime suspect in the case was ul swinney now we're gonna discuss ul and you're gonna see how it's one of those like yeah but surely the case is closed and then also it's a case of like oh Okay, mate. Mm, uh, mm, huh. Yeah. So Swinney was a, a career criminal who was linked to the murders primarily by statements from his wife and additional circumstantial evidence. Swinney was a he was a car thief, and and um, his wife used to actually join him in the you know in the fun times in the fun times. Just so you just so you chums know, actually there is a film about this called The Phantom Killer from 1942. There was also a video game called The Phantom Slayer. So prime suspect, his wife. His wife refused to testify against him, but she sold, she sold him out and then wouldn't testify against him. So then the prosecutors decided against pursuing the case and he was never convicted of murder, but he was sentenced to a long term as, an, uh, as a habitual car thief and forger. Two of the lead investigators in the case, however, they believed he was guilty. And for the most part, when you look at it, it's like, it is the MO, it fits. And there was a, a 2014 book published called The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texacana Serial Murders by Dr. James Presley, who also points to Swinney as the culprit of all five attacks and, and tries to link him to the attacks. So Presley believes that there's enough evidence to close the case. But as it stands, nearly 60 years later, this is still an unsolved case. This is still a cold case. In 1976, <clears throat> there was a film released called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and it was released internationally and is loosely based on the events, despite its claim that only the names have been changed. Sounds a lot like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And on that point, the film was released two years after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but two years before Friday the 13th, the movie, not the, like, not the, the celebration of the date. Because the movie claimed that the story you are about to see is true, where it happened and how it happened, the fabricated parts of the film have created much of the myth and folklore around the murders in subsequent decades. There was also a 2014 sequel for this film. At a, okay, so February 22nd, 1946, the first attack. At around 11.45pm on that Friday night, Jimmy Hollis, 25, and his girlfriend Mary Jean Larry, 19, parked on a secluded road known as Lover's Lane. They'd gone to Lover's Lane after having seen a movie together. Now, in my mind's eye, okay, in my mind's eye, what I'm thinking is like, I don't know if anybody's ever been to like Jansenville or like if you drive out the other side of like Robertson where it's where it's like dirt road and there's those like those metal containers that they grow the trees out of. That's what I'm thinking. But apparently it was more like it was more like a Durbanville situation. You know what I mean? Like they had a cinema and all that kind of stuff. The area that they parked on was about 15 meters from the road on like an unpaved road. And there were a bunch of houses there. And it wasn't, when they say secluded, I don't think they mean that it was like Oturin. It was just like behind people's houses. Do you know what I mean? So 10 minutes after they'd parked, which was at around 5 to 12, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door. He shined a flashlight in the window, and unsure if the man was pranking him, Hollis told him he had the wrong person, to which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. 
both Hollis and Larry were ordered out the driver's side door. So making sure that nobody could run away, he ordered them both out of the same door, gun pointed at them, right? The man ordered Hollis to take off his goddamn britches. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Larry would later tell investigators that the noise was so loud, she had initially thought he had been shot when it had actually been the sound of his skull fracturing. Thinking the assailant wanted to rob them, Larry showed him Hollis's wallet to prove that he had no money, after which she was struck with a blunt object. We don't know if it was the gun. She was, she's not sure. It was dark. So the assailant ordered her to stand, and when she did, told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee towards a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run in a different direction up the road. Larry spotted an old car parked off the road, but found it empty and was again confronted by the attacker. So this dude's playing cat and mouse. Like, this is, I mean, this is, this is insane, right? She ran, and then he stopped her, and then asked her, why is she running? I mean, hold on. When she responded that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. So I, I, this is, we don't know what the motivations are here, but we can guess. After the assault, Larry fled on foot, running a half mile to a nearby house where she attempted to call a passing car by the residence, but was ignored. She was able to awaken the residents of the house and phone the police. Meanwhile, Hollis had regained consciousness and managed to flag down a passerby near where they had been parked. The motorist left Hollis at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where he was able to call the police. Within 30 minutes, the sheriff and three other officers arrived on the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. I mean, look, I know that this is going to sound like pretty weird, but just from this first attack, this guy's like, you can, he told her to run, then chased her, then said, why are you running, called her a liar. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're not dealing with the screws. The screws are in the packet. So Larry, the girl, was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound, while Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. Let's call it a failed attack, but it was a successful attempt at staying alive. Hollis and Larry gave conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what their attacker looked like. And this is where the problem came in. A lot of reports will talk about this and say that both of them gave a description of the guy and they both said it was away. But the reality of the situation was they actually, their descriptions of this guy differed a little bit. And so it was difficult for the police. Also, no DNA. Remember, no iPhone 3, eh? Hey? Larry claimed the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for the eyes and mouth and that she could see under the mask that he was apparently African-American. Hollis alternately claimed that the man was white and around 30 years old but conceded he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded with the flashlight, which makes sense. Both agreed, though, that the assailant was around six feet. Okay, so they've just, he's tall. And uh, law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larry's account and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of the attacker and were covering for him, which is hella strange. That's, I mean, even for 1946, that's kind of weird. Okay, so that was Feb 22nd. This is March 24th, a month later. Richard Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17 at the time, were found dead in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan on Sunday, March 24th, between 8.30 and 9 a.m. by a passing motorist. Tom, how? How? The motorist saw the parked car on Lover's Lane. Again, Lover's Lane, aren't we learning? Named Rich Road. Why is it called Rich Road? Close to a, a, night spot, a nightclub. So they'd, they, they assumed that they'd come from the nightclub, park there, chill out, maybe like tongue kiss a little bit, whatever. The motorist at first thought both were asleep. Griffin was found between the seats on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. 
Very ceremonial, very true detective. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. There is evidence, however, to suggest that she was killed in a blanket outside the car and then later placed there. Griffin had been shot twice while still in the car. Both had been shot in the back of the head and both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to the police that they had been killed outside the car and placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board. Running board is that thing just when you open the door, running board. Ne? You put your feet there, you scrape the mud off, you scrape the, in this case, the blood off. Yeah, and it had flowed through the bottom of the car door. Point thirty-two cartridge shell was also found possibly shot from a colt pistol wrapped in a blanket okay this is the big one right the the colt remember the colt all right remember the all through these things just remember the colt march 24th that happened all right no extant reports indicated that either griffin or moore were examined by a pathologist so they duffed this one a little bit contemporaneous local rumor had it that it was a sexual assault that had occurred but modern reports refute this claim in response to the murders, police launched a citywide investigation along with the Texas and Arkansas City Police and the Department of Public Safety. At this point, they started getting other police um, like departments and sheriff departments and the FBI got involved. So March 24th, this occurred. March 27th, local police had in interviewed 60 witnesses. That was including patrons and employees of the club that was near where this had happened. It was called Club Dallas which was the local bar. By March 30th, so almost a week later, police had posted a $500 reward. And that was in an effort to gain new information on the Griffin and Moore case that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. However, the rewards yielded no fruitful clues or suspects, instead producing 100 false leads. This is like buying followers on social media. You know what I mean? You don't get anything useful, you get 100 false leads. That's what happens. March 24th, second attack. Third attack, April 13th, double murder. On the event of Saturday, Betty Jo Booker, age 15, was playing her alto saxophone. This is perhaps one of the sad ones for me. So on the evening of Saturday, April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, age 15, was playing her alto saxophone in her regular weekly gig with her band, the Rhythmares. Rhythmares? Mares. Not like, not like nightmares, but kind of like nightmares is spelled, but with an I, at one of the clubs. Uh, and that was the last place that this pair was seen alive. At around 1.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, her friend Paul Martin, age 17, arrived to pick her up from their performance. This was the last time that the pair was seen alive. Martin's body was found at around 6.30 a.m. by Mr. and Mrs. Weaver and their son, lying on his left side by the northern edge of the North Park Road. So if you Google this, the Moonlight Murders, that photo of, of this gent lying on his side is usually the first photo that pops up when they talk about these Moonlight Murders. Blood was found further down on the side of the road by a fence. He'd been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the f left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand, and finally through the back of the neck. So I think, I think this dude was, you know, big struggle, or our dude was just cuckoos, like uh, cuckoo bananas drunk. Booker's body was not found until 11.30 a.m., so five hours later, about three kilometers away from Martin's body behind a tree. She was found by members of the family, along with their friend who had joined the search party. Her body was lying on its back, fully clothed, with the right hand in the pocket of their buttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. She was 15. The weapon used was the same as the first double murder, a, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Martin, so the, the gent, his, uh, his Ford Club Coupe was found 
about 5Ks away from Booker's body, was parked outside the Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. The authorities were not sure who shot first. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Gonzalez said that examinations of the bodies indicated that they both put up a terrific struggle, right? That is what we that is what we speculated. It's a terrific struggle. Martin's friend said he did not believe an argument had happened between the victims and that Martin had not had any enemies. Law enforcement was unable to locate Booker's saxophone at the crime scene. The saxophone, which eventually was discovered about six months later on October 24th. Wait for this, okay? You think that this case has, oh my God, it's 1948, uh, 1946, the cops are doing their best, don't worry. Booker's saxophone was not found at the crime scene, but it was eventually discovered around six months later. Still in its black imitation leather case, in underbrush near where Booker's body had been found. Okay, so two things. Either I'm being very dramatic and thinking that the cops, again, don't know how to do their fucking jobs, which, uh, from watching Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, I, uh, you know, I hesitate. I err on the side of judgment. Or that saxophone was put there after the murders, right? It was taken back there. Yeah, 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 we think so too. A reward fund exceeding $1,700 had accrued for information leading to the persons responsible for the Griffin Moore Martin Booker murders. Rumors circulated throughout the area, with one rumor suggesting a local minister had turned on his own son as a suspect in the case. On, on April 18th, there was a statement issued to the public during a press conference verifying that the murderer had not been caught and that rumors circulating among the public and in the newspapers were a hindrance to the investigation and harmful to innocent persons. 60 years, fucking nothing has changed. Am I right? Hey, May 3rd. Okay, so now that last one was April 13th. May 3rd. Like 10 days? Is that right? Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and welder. This is the one. Okay, so this is May 3rd, the final crimes. This this part of the case is like, the, it just gets me. Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and welder, was in his modest ranch-style house on a 500-acre farm. He was, he, was, he was about 16 kilometers northeast of Texarkana. So not in the city. He was a little bit out. Small holding vibe. He turned on his favorite weekly radio show and his wife, Katie, age 36, gave him a heating pad for his sore back. He sat in his armchair in the sitting room, which was just off the kitchen and the bedroom. While Katie was in her bedroom lying on the bed in her nightgown, she heard something from the backyard and asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the May 3rd edition of the Texarkana Gazette, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window, not more than a meter away. No, it wasn't even a meter. It was like 0.91 meters. It's like three feet. Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what sounded like breaking glass. She thought Virgil had dropped something and went to see what happened. As she entered the doorway to the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. She saw blood, then ran to him and lifted up his head. When she realized he was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. She rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot in the face from the same window. One bullet entering her right cheek and exiting behind her left ear. The other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw, splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees, but soon managed to get back to her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the living room, but was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed, so she stumbled toward her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps and into the side-screened porch through the back screen door. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room. 
through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran 50 yards more to A.V. Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help. She gasped, Virgil's dead, and collapsed. Prater shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, Alma Taylor. Prater called to Taylor to bring his car because Mr. and Mrs. Starks had been shot. Taylor, along with Mr. and Mrs. Prater and their baby, rode with Mrs. Starks to the Michael Meager Hospital in town. And Mrs. Starks gave Mr. Taylor, the driver, one of her teeth with a gold filling as a, as a thank you. It's touching what's, what's happened. She was in a semi-conscious state, slumping forward on the front seat. Although she'd lost a considerable amount of blood, she showed no signs of going into shock, and her heart rate remained normal. Miller County Sheriff, who became head of the investigation, quest questioned Mrs. Starks in the operating room. In the operating room, Chom. In the fucking operating room. Broken jaw, shot through the face. Okay, so so this police chum in the operating room asking this woman with the asking her questions. I mm -mm. the news was printed on the front page the next morning, reading in capital letters: "Murder rocks city again. Farmer slain, wife wounded." Four days later, Sheriff Davis talked with Mrs. Starks again at the hospital. Mrs. Starks discounted a circulating rumor that Virgil had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and feared being killed. These unsubstantiated rumors are insane. So now we've got the investigation and post events. The Miller County Sheriff's Department was notified just minutes after the alarm reached Hope City Police. Arkansas State Police officers got the call on their radio and were the first officers at the scene. Some of the reports were contradictory. One of the officers said that they found Stark still slumped in the blood-soaked chair and that the chair had caught fire from the electric heating pad. Smoke was filling the room and was coming up all around the man and between his legs. Sheriff Davis, however, said that when the officers arrived on the scene, they found the chair on fire, but Stark's body was not burned because it had fallen on the floor. Again, I'm not saying that the police don't know how to do their job. I'm just saying that after having watched Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, immediately after reports of the slaying spread, blockades were set up for several miles, northeast and southeast of the highways in and out of town. Davis, the sheriff, called in officers from the entire area to help in the investigation, including two agents from the FBI and the Texas Rangers. So we, it's like a, a very small military that they've now got to come and investigate this because it's going, it's going bananas. In the house, investigators found a trail of blood with scattered teeth on the dining room table where Mrs. Stark's supplies for making a dress. I'm not sure why that's important, but that's what was there. Gonzalez, after seeing the virtual river of blood, stated, It's beyond me why she did not bleed to death. There were only two bullet holes in the window leading Sheriff Davis to believe an automatic rifle was used. Investigators declared that after the killer shot Virgil, he waited patiently outside the window to shoot Virgil's wife. Now remember, each of them was shot twice. There's only two bullet holes. This dude managed to shoot through the same bullet holes twice. Either he shot the first guy and made two holes and then shot through the same holes or two through there, two through there. That sounds like a lot of control to me. It sounds like someone knows how to hold a gun. Three clues were found at the scene. The first was the caliber of bullets. The second was a flashlight found in the hedge underneath the window that Starks was shot from. The last clue were bloody prints around the house. Shoe prints on the kitchen floor, a smudged fingerprint in other places. Sheriff Davis stated that although this murder could not be directly linked to the Phantom because the caliber was different. So the caliber of this, these attacks was a 2-2. It's possible that the killer is one and the same man. Those who had been driving in the area near the time of the slaying along with several men found in the vicinity were picked up for questioning. Early Saturday morning, bloodhounds were brought in from Hope by the Arkansas State Police. 
They found two trails that led to the highway before the scent was lost. This is now where things sort of become a bit sensational for this set of attacks because now everybody is sort of upset and now everybody is, is sort of goes they go a little bit rogue right so the flashlight was sent off to washington dc for investigation with the fbi and uh, mrs starks uh, showed a lot of improvement in the hospital the unofficial theory for the motive against the majority of this was sex mania and this was of all the police officers that they had on this apparently like 47 of these officers had sort of started spreading this rumor because no money was taken out of the house mrs stark's purse was still lying there it was still on the bed none of her jewels had been taken and then it hit the newspaper sex maniac hunted in murders You'll remember that our fund was $500, $6,000 today dollars. When this happened, the reward fund shot up to $7,000. So there was a, and then, and then this was also like the, the start of sort of technological advances. They, they brought in a, a mobile radio station so that the police officer, that this massive police force could communicate with each other. And this was also when sort of the, the daily news and that kind of stuff started getting involved because with this mobile radio station, along came some of the news services that were broadcasting and they were broadcasting to like 300 national stations. So it wasn't just like, it was like, you know, like one news dude and his news is getting broadcast to everybody. They also, it, it was the first, one of the first spot colored photographs in the newspaper was published was the picture of the flashlight with the red, red accents on it, which was, uh, yeah, quite a big deal. So let's, 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 let's talk about the consternation and panic. We're not too worried about the rumors. We can imagine what the rumors were, whatever. The consternation and panic is that because citizens were, were considerably jittery and armed with guns, Texarkana became a very dangerous place. When driving up, officers had to turn on their sirens, stand in their headlights and announce themselves to keep from being shot by nervous homeowners. In order to go to someone's house, you had to call in advance and let them know to expect you. No offense, but if you're coming to visit me, fucking send me a text. And in one case, a fearful tavern proprietor shot a customer who was in search of beer in the foot sleuthing for the phantom led to this is what we spoke about earlier a lot of like a lot of kids started trying to trap this chum but the problem is kids took it upon themselves to do it and then lone wolf lone lone ranger also tried to bait the phantom by recruiting teenagers to sit as decoys in parked cars with the officers sat nearby but you just told them not to do it now you're telling them to do it do you know what i mean Okay, this is, these are the bits and bobs. The unknown killer did not acquire a nickname until after the death of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin. In the April 16th edition of the Texarkana Daily News, a heading read, Phantom Killer Eludes Officers as Investigations of Slayings Pressed. The front page story was continued on page two with the title, Phantom Slayer Eludes Police. The Texarkana Gazette contained a small title on April 17th, which read, Phantom Slayer Still at Large as Probe Continues. The executive editor of the Texarkana Gazette in 1946 said that Kelvin Sutton, the managing editor of the Gazette, had an acute sense of the dramatic in the news, which impelled him to ask if they could not start referring to the unknown murderer as the Phantom. Mahaffey replied, why not? If the son of a bitch continues to elude capture, he certainly can be called a phantom. The description, uh, the, the victims of the first attack, there were only three people that survived this. It was the first attack, the two, and then Katie. Katie never saw the assailant, which is why the descriptions from the first two were so important, because they were relying solely on that. And if you look at the poster for the film, the poster is a guy wearing a pillowcase that's got the holes cut out of it, and it's pretty spot on. The modus operandi established for the killer was that he attacked young couples in empty or private areas just outside city limits using a 32 caliber gun. Although the caliber used in the Starks murder was a 22, a 32 was still believed by the majority of lawmen to have been used by the Phantom. 
He always attacked on the weekend, usually three weeks apart, and always late at night. That's a pretty that's a pretty solid profile that they've got. But I think what's important now, and to and to wrap up, right? They had a couple suspects. They interviewed hundreds of people about this. The prime suspect. So Max Tackett, a 33-year-old state police officer and a rookie at the time, realized that a car had been stolen on the night of one of the murders. You remember when we spoke about Mr. Swinney, the, the, the car thief, eh? remember? And that a previously stolen car had been found abandoned. These realizations are in June. Tackett found a car in a parking lot that had been reported as stolen. He staked out the car until someone came back to it and arrested a 21-year-old Peggy Swinney. She said that she had just gotten married in Shreveport and that her husband was currently in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. Homer Carter, the chief of police in Atlanta, told Tackett that a man had tried selling a stolen car to one of his citizens. How's, how's that though, hey? Husband and wife both get caught in different places, same time, trying to sell stolen cars. Wow. So the police were able to in independently verify some of Peggy's confession, such as locating a victim's possessions in a location she said Ewell had discarded it. A shirt with a laundry mark, perhaps linked to the Starks case, was found in Swinney's possession, but the link was not certain. Swinney's confession was the most crucial part of the case. By law in 1946, Peggy could not be forced to testify against her husband, and because she was considered an unreliable witness, Ewell was not arrested for the murder. Instead, with only circumstantial evidence, Swinney was sent to prison as a habitual offender for car theft. Presley reported in his 2014 book that several investigations in the Swinney case agreed. Uh, invest investigations? What? Uh, no, several invest investigators in the Swinney case later said that the habitual offender sentence was effectively a plea bargain. They, they found a way to put him away so that he was not a threat. Do you know what I mean? And that's, that's the amazing part. Even though the case files indicated no such agreement was reached formally, Swinney was concerned about being sentenced to death for the murders, so agreed not to contest the habitual offender charge and in fact tried to plead guilty even though habitual offender cases required a jury trial. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and complications about this because in 1999, an anonymous woman contacted family members of the victims. There were like two phone calls. One was in 99 and one was in 2000 and somebody phoned to apologize for what her father had done. Swinney, they never had a daughter. No, mm -mm, no. So then there was a dude called Duty, Duty Tennyson, who committed suicide in Fayetteville and he left a note. This is my last word to you fine people and you are fine. I want to thank you for all the trouble that you have gone to to send me to college and bring me up. You have really been wonderful. My thanks to Ella Lee for letting me stay with her during my college career and Belva for putting up with me the way she did. She had to, I know, but I fell in love with her about a week ago. If she was older, I would have asked her to marry me. She was 12. Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. He tried to confess in his note, but then they found other notes in his room that said that he, they must ignore that because he's lying. And then his his family like showed them all the stuff and they were like, how could he have done it? Like he was never there and that, uh, you know, he was just terrible. So there was a lot of stuff going on in 1946. They were trying to hypnotize people to get them to confess and all of this kind of stuff. But my last word on this case, the most interesting thing to me, the most interesting suspect that they had was found on Wednesday, May 8th. It was announced that an escaped German prisoner of war was considered a suspect. He was hunted as a matter of routine. 
He was described as a stocky 24-year-old weighing 187 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. The prisoner of war stole a car in Arkansas and attempted to buy ammunition in several eastern Oklahoma towns. Meanwhile, late at night on Tuesday, May 7th, a 45-year-old black man named Herbert Thomas was flagged down by a hitchhiker in Kilgore. The hitchhiker offered $5 and said that he needed a ride to Henderson because his mother was seriously ill. Thomas said that he was not normally the type to give someone a ride, but felt like he needed to because this man had such a sad story. When they neared Henderson, the hitchhiker pulled out a pistol and told Thomas to keep driving or he would kill him like the five people he killed in Texarkana, mentioning Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker by name. The man told Thomas that he was not done with killing and that he was going to return to Texarkana to kill Martin's father. The man then ordered Thomas to turn around in Lufkin and drive back to Kilgore and threatened that if Thomas followed him, he would trail and kill Thomas. The man then stole back his $5 as well as an additional $3. Thomas drove back to Kilgore and reported the incident to police. Thomas described the man as being 5'8 and about 130 pounds, approximately 27 or 28 years old with red hair and wearing khaki trousers and a GI jacket. During that same night in Lufkin, a local resident named Robert Atkinson spotted a peeping Tom in his window. Atkinson grabbed a flashlight and chased after the man, but he escaped. Atkinson then got in his car and went looking for him. Atkinson caught the man he believed was the peeping Tom, but the man convinced Atkinson that he was not the window peeper and that he had just been taking his girlfriend home. Atkinson later heard the story about Thomas and decided to notify police of his experience. Atkinson said the man was about 5'9", wore car keys, that his hair could have been dark red. Gonzalez said, We do not believe that the man who killed the five people here in the past six weeks would boast about his crimes and let them go. It's unsure whether the man in each instance was the same man. The police kept searching for this prisoner of war, but it's said that he had vanished into thin air. And that's the story. That's the story of the Phantom. There's also another, there's like another aspect of the story where like the one chum years later, they found a body that had been dismembered by a train. So one arm and one leg at the hip had been cut off by a train. When they did the look at the body, they found out that the dismemberment had happened after the body was dead because there was no, there was no blood when the train did it. But the police were adamant the train had killed the dude. The coroner who did the report refused to let them say that it was a suicide because he was like, it, it cannot be a suicide if the guy was killed because the guy was found with like stab wounds in his, in his armpit, I think. One in his armpit and like three in his chest or something. And there was no blood flow. So there was no congealed pools of blood in the vicinity of the body. And that's what this guy was trying to tell them. And they just wouldn't listen to him. It was trash. Thank you so much for listening.